0: Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is Aquathread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia. In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Catherine Youngblood, research engineer and director of citizen science for Marine Debris Tracker at the University of Georgia, with me. How are you doing today, Catherine?
1: I'm doing well. Still, still working on our house, and which is keeping us busy. I mentioned on a previous episode that we recently bought a hundred-year-old house that's a bit of a fixer-upper, so that's been an ongoing project. Um, but I had my family come up a couple weeks ago, so just finished our guest room a bunch of drywall work and painting and put down new flooring in there. So we're making progress slowly but surely.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I remember having my first visitors or having me and my family come for the first time to my house and getting the guest room complete. And that's always a great sense of accomplishment, I feel like, to be able to host, especially your parents coming to your house. So. You know, actually, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods this summer, so I think you've given me permission to stop by, so I'm excited to see your place. Actually, I'm going to be road tripping with my family, Uh, my husband, two teen boys, two dogs, and a cat in a minivan, so let's hope we still like each other. After this one, uh, we're actually headed up to New England where I have a conference, but we're going to visit where I used to live, or where we used to live, Um, and when I was at the University of New Hampshire, which is now 14 years ago. But my oldest son, who's about to turn 15, was born there. So then we're going to travel west to eventually land in Minnesota for a couple of weeks um, to see some of my family there. So I'm curious, Catherine, do you have any trips planned for this summer, whether work or non-work related? I know for work, you're headed to Alaska, which is pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, that, that's one of the big ones this summer, so I'm, I'm really excited for that. I've got a, about another month, and then I'll be up in Alaska. The Prince William Sound Stewardship Foundation invited us to come up um, to participate in one of their cleanups, so they use our Debris Tracker app to monitor some of their coastlines there. Um, obviously, I've done lots of beach cleanups before, but they do... Really, they're more expeditions than cleanups. Um, so it'll be like three days out on a boat, camping in the in the Sound, um, picking up hopefully thousands of pounds of derelict fishing gear. Um, so I think it's going to be really, really interesting, really informative, and a, a different scale of a lot of the beach cleanups I've done before. So I'm really excited for that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be really a great experience. I'm so glad you're getting to do that. Well, travel I think is currently on the mind of our guest today. She's uh, been traveling a lot and and just returned from Geneva and and some Basel convention talks. We're so grateful for all the work that you do. It's it's travel for such important reasons. Our guest today is Erica Nunez of the Ocean Foundation. Erica is someone uh, both Catherine and I you've met while working on a project in Mexico with Ocean Conservancy and Tec de Monterrey. We were conducting circularity assessment protocols, or CAPS we call for short, in five different cities in Mexico in collaboration with the university. This was such a cool project to be involved in. There were so many students involved. Um, It was also during the height of COVID though. So other than our initial trip to Mexico City at the start of the project to kind of kick things off. um, And that was just a month before the COVID shutdown. We all didn't get to see each other in person. So we did this turned into basically a zoom communication project. um, But we all worked together to get it done. So Erica, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jenna. I'm really happy to be here and looking forward to this conversation.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. So we would love for you to start with your background and and what your path was or has been to get to the Ocean Foundation. I know you've worked both for the government and for nonprofits before this position. So how did you end up where you are?
2: Yeah, my path was pretty non-traditional. I I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So like my undergrad is in paralegal studies. I was working in a law firm and at the time my resume was posted on monster.com. So that tells you how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> and a recruiter it. contacted me about, hey, would you be interested in doing, working for a federal law enforcement agency doing conservation work? And I was like, absolutely yes. Um, and I interviewed, I got the job and that's kind of what started it with NOAA um, in the regional office in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and from there, it just kind of grew. Um, I was there for like 10 years, and an opportunity came to transfer to headquarters in DC and start doing international work. And that's really where um, that's really what opened my eyes um, to what the, the the national and also global perspective on conservation was and how decisions were made and how how things that are agreed upon internationally are implemented nationally. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my last job at NOAA was at international affairs and that was really the one that put all the pieces of all the things I love together, the conservation, the analytical, the regulatory, the policy all in one um, scoop. So I was lucky to be able to continue doing that work when I left federal government. So in 2019, I went to, you know, 2019 odd things happening in the presidential races and stuff, you know, in the US. Mm And I was able to continue the work at Ocean Conservancy doing international policy work. And then in 2021, the summer of 2021, actually uh, uh, applied for and got the job at the Ocean Foundation to lead their plastics program and pretty much build it from the ground up. And it's been just great and exciting. And so many, so many things have just opened up. Um, I'm really lucky to be able to continue doing the work that I love to do.
0: Yeah, it's and you've done an incredible job building this and and kicking it off. So thank you for that.
1: So working in the ocean space for over 16 years, you obviously really love the ocean. Um, What inspired this love of the ocean?
2: Yeah, so I grew up, I've always lived um, close to the ocean until kind of now where I'm I'm in North Carolina in the middle of the state. But I grew up on the north shore of Massachusetts. So we were really close to the beach. Um, So you know, you take it for granted when you live so close to it. We would always, I could always just walk to the beach, honestly, um, and just, you know, play, walk, enjoy the sounds. It was a park there. And then I lived in St. Petersburg, Florida and still really close to the beach. Um, I think it's one of those things that you don't realize you love until you realize you love it. Um, and what joy it brings you and just the ocean and what it brings is just a, peaceful and it's just a calming place and I think and then the more you, when I started working on ocean issues you realize how much the ocean is a foundation for our existence and how critical it is um so you you become more passionate about it it's not now it's no longer just like a hobby or something you like to do on a day off it's really like this is really critical to our existence and it just puts another layer of you know, love and passion, and also scared, and <laughs> wanting to do a million things at once, um, in order to conserve it. So really, you know, all of that, and and then in, in my background, you know, my my parents, I'm a first generation American. My parents are from the Caribbean. They uh, immigrated to the U.S. Um, in the '60s uh, from Dominican Republic, and you know, the just the the water, the ocean has just always been a part of our life. Um, and that just carries forward. So I think deep down it was like roots, and then it just kind of flourished as I continued to do this work. Mm.
1: I love that. I love that yeah, I think that um, a lot of people who work in the environmental space have have such a deep like personal connection to the to the environments they work to protect. So which does add a layer of of stress and and kind of seriousness of of the work that you're doing. But I think that's really important.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree. My my childhood definitely impacted growing up on the banks of the river and and seeing the ocean when I visited my dad. Um, it definitely has those roots. So, uh, Erica, you've you've served on so many global policymaking groups at the UN level on on global issues like plastics. Um, I'd love for you to tell us a bit about what it's like at some of those meetings, or you know, is there an example you could maybe share with us about how things get decided, you know, you don't have to give any specifics of negotiations, um, but, you know, maybe give, give our audience a little peek behind that curtain of what kind of happens.
2: Yeah, it's, if you could picture a group project with 170 (laughs) or so people um, working on the same Google Doc, that is literally what these negotiations look like. Wow. Um, you know, a big Google doc on a, on a big a monitor and you know, going in line by line with suggestions or no, let's change this verb for something else or this doesn't work well. let's can we remove the sentence? Can we move this? this doesn't make sense here? literally. Um, that's how the negotiations go. It can feel a little chaotic. It can feel a lot of times like, you know, logic doesn't live here. <laughs> but there is definitely a, a method to the madness and you really appreciate when at the global level agreements can be made and there is something that is that comes out of it because there is so much put into it. And you think about, you know, how different circumstances every country is in um, politically, economically, like there's so many different but culturally and yet there is this movement during these kind of global meetings to come to a common understanding, to come to common agreement. And I think, you know, we lose sight of that a lot of times, um, especially us that work in this field directly, and also just people that that maybe don't and don't see the day-to-day. It just seems like, oh, well, this was a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Um, But really the amount of thought and effort um, and resources that go into, you know, trying to really come out with um, effective policies to conserve our environment like it takes a lot to get there so i think it's important for me honestly too to to keep sight of that um mm-hmm. because even within our own government you see how how chaotic it is for two sides to agree right and and if you multiply that globally it really is a miracle a lot of times that we can come out with some of these agreements um so that's you know really in in depending on what the subject matter is you know too. A lot of these meetings are also just scientific gatherings and talking about the science, you know, that's that's a more, I guess, I don't want to use the word contentious, but I can't think of a better word. The, the science is the science typically, right? So it's really hard. There's usually not, you know, you don't have to debate over things uh, oftentimes in a scientific world compared to the policy world where there, there are kind of differences there. So um, it is it is exciting. Um, you, I see, I say sometimes like you have to be a certain kind of crazy to love this work. You know, you start at 8 AM and you probably won't finish till like 10 midnight, 3 AM and have to come back at 8 AM and start again. Um, but it really is, uh, you know, it's an exciting process to be a part of and, and to see in action for sure. And you get a greater appreciation, uh, for governments and the work that they do when they have to do this at a global level versus at a national or subnational mm. level.
0: Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. It it sounds and and for doing those eight a.m. to ten p.m. days, it, it sounds almost like the process itself is you know um, you know there's benefits to the process. It's not just that final document that sort of the world sees. It's really like there's benefits from everybody talking and getting through the process of negotiation that sort of go beyond what this what the final agreement is. And I love that yeah. you shared that.
1: Speaking of effective policy, while you were at Ocean Conservancy, you helped to develop the Plastic Policy Playbook, Strategies for a Plastic-Free Ocean. And then last year, you were a contributor to the University of Portsmouth Global Policy Review Report. Could you tell us a bit more about that and who the
2: audience for these materials is? Yeah, so both um, both of these documents really tried to look at the broad solution set for plastic pollution um and identify pros and cons identify you know what things you need to consider if you're a policymaker in order to implement these and and uh where where would they work in a in a general sense right like there's no cookie cutter um situation you know you have to look at holistically especially if you're a government on what Based on your condition, based on your you know, legislation, what, what will work, what can you implement? So really, you know, it's both of these are geared to a broad audience, but I would say probably priority audience would be policymakers um, at the national, uh, regional, even local level, because we know that a lot of these um regulations and legislations are put in place locally. Um, and, and it starts really at the city level, right, or the mi- municipality level um so it was really important to look at what are the policy solution sets that are either theoretically out there or actually being utilized out there and how can they be implemented or have they been shown to be effective or not but it's not only for you know policymakers i would say because businesses and ngos play a, a huge role in in solutions for plastic pollution and other and other environmental issues so businesses obviously can implement some of these things a lot faster than governments can Um, they, they can move a lot more swiftly without waiting for government regulation. And I think that's another reason why, you know, resources like this are, are important. Um, and they could also, you know, help them prepare for when these things do become, um, mandatory versus, you know, a voluntary action. Um, and then NGOs, you know, play a big role in this space as well. Oftentimes, especially internationally, NGOs do a lot of the capacity building. They do a lot of the, trainings and assisting um, governments um, in in building their regulations, in building their, you know, identifying their um, leakage points and th- those types of issues. So I think, you know, even though it's kind of, it's written for a broad audience, there's benefits that can be taken from, from each, you know, from each sector, um, for sure.
1: Yeah, that's such a great perspective. I think Making sure people know, both in the NGO space and businesses and governments, what what to advocate for and what's effective in terms of reduction is really important.
0: And I love how you talked about the local component, right? Because that's, that's why we're doing some of the work that we're doing. That's where many of these decisions, even if we have these global agreements, even if we have these national action plans, communities have to decide what to do in their space. Um, and and that's so critical. So it's great to have a resource for that. So I want to switch over to something else that I know is really important to you. You've previously served as chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Task Force, and you mentor young conservationists of color. I also uh, know that you and I have talked a little bit about being more of an introvert at heart, but you've posted on social media about how important it is uh, to represent and be seen doing your work on panels, giving talks, for example, um, which is so great to see you doing so much of that these days. I really admire you for that. So tell us more about why this is so important to you.
2: Yeah, you know, as we've talked about, yeah, public speaking has always been my biggest fear. I have always hated it. Um, I am an I am a chronic overthinker. Um, and when you're on a panel or you're a speaking event or a webinar, like you can't just delete, you can't, you you know, you can't go back (laughs) and rewind and say, oh, let me, let me do this again, or let me reword it. You know, it's kind of like on the spot, there it is. And, um, once I got, um, to the ocean foundation and in this kind of, uh, leadership role for, for plastics, you know, you know, avoiding was no longer an option. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to kind of jump in, you know, head first. And but I think at the same time, also, um, I felt a responsibility to, you know, take take every invitation uh, to speak because there's still a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of equal representation um, of people of color in in the conservation space. Mm -hmm. And then you add, you know, in the ocean space and then you add in the policy space, Mm -hmm. um, you know, those are very still heavily segregated kind of groups and you, you don't see a lot of people of color. Um, speaking, you know, from a policy level, from a government level, um, about environmental issues and solutions. So for me, it I had to kind of get over that, and and I have because I've done it so many times at this point. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's it's important to see yourself in other people. And I remember the first time that you know I was working at NOAA um, at headquarters at this point, so I I was starting in in the policy world. And the first time I went to a meeting and, you know, the highest ranking person in that meeting was a person of color. And that for me was the first time seeing, uh, you know, a a head of government as a person of color. And Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is, oh my gosh, this is exciting. You know what I mean? And feeling like, okay, we do work in this field. Cause Mm you know, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, oh, people of color aren't in this field or they're hard to find, or, you know, they're not in the sciences, they're not in conservation, and, which is absolutely not true, mm-hmm. um, but it was to see it. And especially after feeling like, wow, every place I've gone, I've been the only person of color. Um, oftentimes the only woman of color or mm-hmm. the only woman, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, that, although you try not to like think about it, but that adds to your level of anxiety, honestly, because you feel like, oh my gosh, you know, I have to be perfect because if I'm not perfect, I won't get invited back, or if I'm not perfect, I won't, you know, I won't be seen as an equal. Um, so I think for me, especially now and where I'm where I'm at, I love to talk to, you know, young people that are starting out and encourage them to step out and not be afraid and and try to not listen to those voices and and you know, ask the questions in the room and you know, offer to be a lead on something and not be afraid. Cause I think that having to, for me, making myself do those things also makes you feel more confident where it doesn't bother you anymore. Cause honestly, I'm still oftentimes the only woman of color, you know, in this space, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel that pressure of, oh, I have to be, like, I feel like, okay, I am, and I know what I'm talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think for me, you know, it's really, you know, at this point, in, in, in addition to, you know, kind of growing my work and what I'm doing, also, you know, really love to and want to get the next group ready to do this work to continue, you know, because we're not going to be around forever. Um, And somebody has to continue the fight, right. And um, that that's just equally important to me, than you know, the work, you know, the day to day of the policy work and the fun stuff, you know, I really, it's, it's critical, really, to have a diverse workforce within conservation. And I don't think we've done a good enough job of that yet.
0: And it matters because well representation matters, but that diversity of thought and perspective, I mean, that is proven as we move towards solutions, they are so much better when you have those voices. Yeah. And I, I hope that
1: dynamic does shift over time with with leaders like you being being that voice. I know that's probably not always a, a comfortable position, but I, I think it's really it's so important what you're doing to to show what's possible to to younger generations. So thank you for that. Um we know that with all your policy experience you're very involved in the plastics treaty process and the treaty is under negotiation now which brings science to the policy table and your voice and perspective is really important in that so i would love for you to tell us a bit more about your experience in this role and maybe describe the treaty process a bit for our listeners who don't know much about it and and what you think the treaty could mean to making a difference on plastic pollution yeah so i think so
2: what I mentioned kind of earlier is this common understanding and this common agreement um, on a problem and a potential and potential solutions. And you know, for me as an NGO in this space, we're observers. So we're we're part of the. We don't actually negotiate. You know, negotiation is done by the countries, the member states. But we are a, a critical piece. You know, we provide a lot of the scientific data. We we provide a lot of the. Um, perspective that is oftentimes missing um, from a government level perspective or national government level perspective. Um, So in terms of the the Plastics Treaty, you know, in in last year, in February 2022, uh, at the UN Environment Assembly, um, 150 or 60 countries agreed that it was time to start negotiating a Plastics Treaty. And I call it Plastics Treaty and everybody calls it Plastics Treaty, but it's actually not a treaty. Um, It's just the easiest thing without giving it a weird acronym, Um, but it is just, uh, it will be some kind of internationally, the ULI binding framework, and that's really what it's, that's the actual term of it. Um, So up until this point, since February, we we had um, PrEP meeting where uh, at that point, the countries and NGOs and industry and others get together and decide on, you know, uh, elected officials. It's a bureau um, from different countries, different regions. Um, They're kind of like the governance body of this process. Um, There's a secretariat who is kind of the head planner, the administrator. They print the documents, that type of stuff. Um, So you decide at these prep meetings, the rules of procedure, how many meetings you think you're going to need, those types of things. And then After that was done in November, we had the first negotiation committee meeting. So uh, this body is called the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, uh, INC for short, because we love acronyms. Um, (laughs) And so at this meeting, you know, this was the first kind of view of where countries' positions were. There was a lot of statements, a lot of discussions Um, some dialogue uh, panels to talk about issues, nothing really concrete, but you walked away with a sense. Um, From that, the secretariat uh, developed what's called an options paper. And this is kind of like the first time you put like everything you could possibly do to solve plastic pollution in one document. And what that's supposed to do is kind of drive the discussion. So we're now getting ready for INC 2 which will people start traveling next week. Um, it'll be in Paris, France. And the basis of that discussion is going to be that options paper and discussing what are we going to use? What, which one of these solution sets are we gonna try to implement into this framework? Um, and that could be mandatory, that could be voluntary for even though we call it legally binding, there will be both mandatory and voluntary measures in there. Um, So really, this next meeting is going to be the first time that you will hear what countries are thinking about for this treaty. Like what actually do they want in it or what potentially do they not want in it? Um, And from these discussions, uh, we'll be able to what will happen is between now and the next meeting, which will happen in November or December is what's called a zero draft will be developed. Um, A zero draft is basically your first rough draft of a treaty or convention or whatever this thing is going to be called. Uh, So really this number two meeting is going to be pretty critical and foundational to what could potentially end up being in the final document. Um, This is where we'll see the crux of, you know, are we going to really start looking at production? Are we going to just focus on downstream and just, make it, you know, we need to improve waste management. Are we gonna incorporate the informal sector, which in globally, they're a critical piece. Waste pickers play a critical role in preventing plastic pollution. They're oftentimes the only um, sector that is collecting plastic waste or waste in general. You know, how are we going to, are they gonna be acknowledged here? Are they gonna be um, discussed? Is there gonna be a framework around how they should be incorporated? You know, there's a lot of questions that um, hopefully we'll get some answers from this meeting. But I will say like the, the next number three is where the real hard negotiations will start. And then there'll be two more meetings after that. And then we should have a final document. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, we should have a final document. The plan is to have a final document in 2024, um, which is absolutely insane when you think about how complicated plastic pollution is and how, how much it's everywhere and it's in every sector. Um, but you know, high hopes that we will have something effective to talk about uh, next year.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. Like you, like you said, still a lot of question marks. But I think overall, it's, it's really promising. And and thank you for describing what that process looks like. Um, I'm glad there are people in the room like you who thought so much about the science to action and thought th- thought so much about the effective policy that could be be implemented with this process. So,
0: yeah, this really is an accelerated. Timeline. It's amazing, Um, and and I think goes to show how important people realize this issue is. Um, I also I appreciate you talking about the informal sector, and I want to reference everyone. We have an entire episode um, with Sonia Diaz of WeGo, who was our guest, and uh, Catherine was actually co-host for that. So if people want to hear a whole episode on the informal sector and and their role in the space, you can head to that episode. So. I want to talk about travel now and a little bit of balance I guess. I think, you know, for me the years uh, the years heading up to 2019 were just crazy. I think I was on travel like 60% of my time. And, you know, since COVID, I've changed a bit. Um I mean, there's all kinds of of reasons why my work is a little different and I love that we're working with, you know, local implementation partners where, you know, people within their community can, you know, perform the work in in collaboration with us. But anyway, I have sort of these rules for myself. I try not to be gone more than two weeks at a time. You know, do you have any, you know, thoughts or or guidelines for yourself on how to keep some of that balance? I know your travel schedule is really ramped up.
2: Yeah, so what I've learned is when you travel, um, your eating habits and your exercise habits completely go out the window. I don't know how many times I've packed like sneakers and workout clothes and they came back exactly the same <laughs> as how I packed them. So I figured, you know, that's just, that's just taking up too much space in my luggage at this point. So I don't pack it anymore. Um, but like leading up to a meeting, um, you know, I do my very best to like be really good about what I eat, be really good mm-hmm. about going outside and exercising. Cause I know, when I'm traveling, there's limited time to do any of that. You are in a conference room from morning till night, you know, you might have to go to a meeting after and then you're back into your hotel. There is no really outside time. It's really not glamorous. Like people think it is, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though you go to some really cool places. Um, So I'm really careful about, you know, that because then, so when I come back, my recovery isn't as terrible, right. I didn't fall too hard off, off the wagon. Um, calendar management is also a big thing that i've started to do like i'll be very mindful about my calendar before i'm going to go on a trip so i'll blo- i'll specifically block time so that people don't schedule a meeting or to remind myself not to schedule um not to overly schedule myself before i leave or when i come back um, because that also kind of adds to your like burnout and your you're just like not being able to like get back into your routine And I always, I try to take a day off when I come back to like, I try to offset and just take a day off to do whatever, you know, sleep sometimes, or, you know, go to grocery store, just do like regular things before I jump right back into work. Because your schedule when you're on these trips, Jen, I know, you know, and, and Catherine, you're not, you are literally working the entire time, which is not the case when you're home or when you're on your regular day to day, you know, you do take time to do other things. You do kind of, that eight hour nine hour whatever it is you do when you travel you don't there there's a there are no rules so really being mindful of making sure that you know i don't burn myself out which in the beginning it took me a while to figure that out because i was burning out because i wasn't doing that um, and when I'm home, I honestly like binge watching cooking competitions is like my favorite thing. It's like mindless entertainment. It has nothing to do with my job. I am not an avid cooker. I do cook, but I'm not like looking at recipes right. to see like, what can I cook now? No, like I should be a pro chef the amount of cooking competitions I've watched, but I literally don't retain anything. It's just <laughs> mindless entertainment.
1: That's nice. And that
2: totally helps, you know, kind of like, and it's lovely, you know I mean? It's nobody's arguing. It's not like, you know, there is no, there is no animosity. It's just people cooking and it's like, great. So that, that is definitely another piece of my like recovery mode. That's
0: great. I used to save up shows to watch on the planes. I always try to work on the planes, but there's never enough room. (laughs) Honestly, I don't know how people can do it. I'm like, my arms are too long for the for the tray so I mean I attempt to work a little bit because time goes by fast when I work but usually I just have to save up TV shows and, and try to watch them on planes. But yeah, the day when you get back, that that's that's good. That's key. Um, I definitely used to do that as well. And I think I was on so much travel that people never thought I was home. So actually, my life was quieter. Like, I don't know what it is. But it was just like, now, you know, that I am around more, it's actually like very, very scheduled, you know, just as much at home, almost as it was on, on travel. But Um, I love those hints. Those travel hints are great.
1: Yeah, I like the strategy. I need to take off the day after travel to watch Great British Waking Show. I think this is a good idea. (laughs) Yes,
2: (laughs) Yes. that is definitely my top.
1: So we've heard about a few of the projects you're working on, but what is currently your biggest focus or concern in the plastic space? And then what's next for you?
2: So for at TOFR, like my biggest focus really is on uh, redesign chemical simplification um and i always have to kind of explain that to folks they're like but you're the ocean foundation don't mm-hmm. you do ocean things and i'm like well if i'm trying to prevent plastics from getting into the ocean i need to we need to drastically remake um yeah. and remake them in a way that they can be reused and, re- and or recycled so they're safe right um we need to minimize what we're making of plastic materials so you know, the, the redesign piece is so intriguing to me because we don't talk enough about it. Um, You know, circular economy has been a key word for the last couple of years. And, you know, we still haven't reached that point. Well, you can't have a true circular economy. If you have materials that are no good and cannot be recycled, how is it going to be circular? If you're not making them in a way to allow them to be circular. Um, so it, it is really a focus area for me in the, in the chemical space is super interesting because the more you learn about it, the more you're like, wow, we really haven't done enough to make these materials safe. <laughs> yeah. You know, we really haven't done enough to make these materials again recyclable because a lot of the additives um, that are in processing aids are also what make a lot of these things not no good for recycling. Um, Or maybe you're lucky to get one recycle out of it and but still have to add virgin to it, you know, so having focusing on that has been super interesting and really I hope takes off, especially with this treaty discussion which you know innovation and redesign and uh, removal of toxins and chemical simplification have really come up a lot. And I really hope this drives the conversation beyond just those talking points to really look at how we can do this, either from the business side, but also the government side. Where can the government play a role in in uh, harnessing innovation in a way that will make plastic, the ones that we do need, you know, safer and able to be recycled? Um, so that's you know what the where I focus. Um, from a policy priority. And then, you know, where I want to see this or what's next, um, I envision us playing a role in implementation once the the treaty or the convention is established and really looking at national and sub national legislation, especially not necessarily in developed, but in developing uh, countries in order for them to be able to comply with the, convention or treaty um, measures. So I really see us playing a role in that, you know, TOF has done that in the past um, at the national level. And I think that's where we're, we'd be really well-suited um, as kind of the next step of this process.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to hear that that element of redesigning, not just for improved circularity, but also for human health has been part of these conversations. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Catherine sees enough stuff on the ground. <laughs> to to know the real need for that, the data we're collecting in the community, you know, what's for sale in stores, what's on the shelves. It's, it's so lacking in both of those regards. So. Okay. So for final thought, uh, as you know, part of the reason we bring guests on is to hear different perspectives. We know that These systems will only change in a just and equitable way if we have representative perspectives and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to every guest. So today, in terms of we've been discussing plastic pollution, what voice do you think is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And as a second part to this question, how do we make that happen?
2: So I think for the first part, we need to hear more from fence line communities, uh, and indigenous peoples in the space, waste pickers, you know, those that are directly impacted by plastic pollution. And I think, um, it's happening at a slow and incremental pace. Um, in environmental spaces, I find that we silo a lot. So like in the policy space, you typically are just talking to policy people. And I don't, think we've gotten to the point where, where the policy people are also including the on-the-ground people or the industry folk that are not a brand or not a manufacturer, but, you know, a recycler or a converter or all those mm-hmm. other pieces of the value chain in the policy discussion. So I think, like, for me, I would love to see that um, in a way that's authentic, you know, and not in a way that is tokenizing uh, you know, fence line and indigenous people, because I think there's also a danger in that in this space to mm-hmm. want to show that you're being inclusive, but not taking into account viewpoints and perspectives in a way that you are actually integrating them into your decisions, you know, and I, yep. and I think we need to do a better job in that as well in this space. The the um, economists and the social scientists, mm-hmm. I think, are also heavily missing in this space. You know, we when we're talking about Circular economy or you know, all these other tag words, we have we heavily rely on industry and in their talking points. Mm. And I haven't seen any of us in this space really take an economic look independently um, to what these measures could potentially do. You know, you hear a lot, well, if we if we do systemic change, we're gonna crash the economy. Are we really? No. You know, who's looking at this data outside of, you know, those that have a vested interest? So I would love to see more. Social scientists, because we do need that behavior change, and this is not a consumer-driven problem. But we still need there's still a huge piece in the solution, mm. and we haven't engaged um, authentically or great in that space either. So that's what I would love to see. And how do we do that? I mean, Jenna, we got to put these people together. I know. <laughs> I mean, I think it's like, how do you do that? I think it's it's on people like us to be the connectors. And, you know, I try to do that as much as I can because I talk to so many people, um, but really there needs to be a convening of like a, a brainstorming that includes all of these pieces that have been excluded yeah. to really come out with things that will be systemic um, and effective. So, I, you know, that's that's what I, there's huge opportunity to do it, but somebody needs to do it.
0: Yep. I'm there. Let's do it. All right. Excellent.
2: We'll put that on top of all
0: of our other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right, in, in our free time. But no, I mean, you know, that's part, I mean, part of this is really to to get to this, to, like, how would we make something like that happen? And, and this is the start of, maybe this is the spark or the start of that. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, we want to thank you again, Erica, for all your work uh, over the years on plastic pollution.
0: And I want to I want to echo that and thank you so much for putting yourself out there, for traveling so much right now, speaking and representing on panels all over the world. Your voice is so respected in this space and we're so grateful for it.
2: Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Uh, I really appreciate the time and the invitation. and It was great. It was great talking to you both.
0: Thank you. And to all our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the Aquathread.